Reunion, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, was presented by Earl Craig on August 4, 2015, at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute, Reunion, Tanakh, and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. Well, David assigned me the task of presenting you with the interpretation of Matthew 2 as it relates to Matthew's quote from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And this was one of the most complicated projects that I have ever pursued. And so this afternoon, what I intend to do is not necessarily to give you the definitive answer on the question, what is the correct interpretation of Matthew 2 with respect to Hosea 11? But you can probably tell by the amount of material that I provided you, the, the intent is to provide you with more material to give you the opportunity to continue to think about these two passages and do your own work. And so what I would like to do now is not go through all of this material, but hit the highlights, point some things out that you can continue to think about, some things that really struck me in, in preparation for your taking all of this material and continuing to do your own work. I find the learning of history and geography to be very helpful in my journey as a Christian. Recently in particular, I've been really struggling with a lot of depression. And so this particular project has been incredibly helpful to me in providing me with some more perspectives, some things to think about, some things to, that have been clarified in my own mind that I've been working on for you know, 30 years or more as a so-called Bible student. So I would hope that what we're doing throughout this whole week in the various passages that we're looking at will continue to be helpful to you too as you figure out what it really, continue to figure out what it really means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus of Nazareth as the Jewish Messiah. So let's dive in. And you should have a packet, hopefully, that has basically seven sections to it in that it starts with a group of maps and then you get sections one through six. Let's start with the maps. The first map is just a map of the modern Middle East. It shows you the various countries with respect to one another. The second map, is and a very important one with respect to Hosea 11, 1, and really all of the biblical history. And that is, uh, this shows the allocation of the land of Canaan to the tribes of Israel around 1500 B.C., after Moses had led the Israelites from Egypt to the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to them through Abraham. And you can reference this, I'll reference it, even if it's just by talking about it, over the course of what I want to say here in the next 50 minutes. 
The second map is also an important one for you to think about over time because this one shows the two kingdoms that we've mentioned a couple of times, the northern kingdom of Israel that's more kind of pinkish there, Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And these two kingdoms became two kingdoms, that is the, the united monarchy of Solomon got divided after his reign as a result of his son, Rehoboam. And that happened in 928 BC, and then these two kingdoms continued to be divided right on through the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 BC. The map after that shows you the Assyrian Empire because it figures prominently into the story of Hosea and the northern kingdom of Israel as Hosea is addressing them in his book in his talks. And so the kind of orangish area there is the Syrian Empire. And you'll see that it extends on up above the Tigris River. So that's going to be Kurdistan or the area that ISIS is in control of right now, north of the ancient city of Nineveh. And extended down eventually because of what Tiglath-Pileser III did and other kings of Assyria when they took the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. And so that's that little area down just south of Damascus too, but doesn't incorporate Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah because they did not overrun that. However, the following map is a map of the Babylonian Empire and exile because the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians and then it was the Babylonian Empire that had the privilege, one could say, I guess, as the instrument of God, the tool of God, to take the southern kingdom of Judah into exile and destroy the southern kingdom of Judah as well as the temple between the years of 600 and 586 B.C. As one heads into the New Testament times, the the map after that one, I wanted to show you Herod's kingdom because Herod is mentioned at the beginning of chapter 2 of Matthew. And Herod was a so-called client king, and he ruled over an area that incorporated, you can see there, kind of both the southern kingdom of Judah because there's Jerusalem, which is somewhat on the northern border of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he ruled up into the Galilean area, even into the Golan Heights. And that was until, I'm just guessing, I think 4 BC, that's what I found, sort of the time when he died. There is some controversy about that. The final map that also is helpful, I think, when you're reading through the Gospels is the map of the so-called tetrarchies of Herod's sons after he died. His kingdom was divided up amongst his three sons. Tetrarchy actually comes from the word four, though, because Archelaus, one of the sons, got one half of the kingdom, two-fourths, while his other brothers, Antipas and Philip, each got one-fourth. And that's from 4 B.C. on, and I just didn't bother to put down an ending date to that. I'm not sure when these areas really became less than simply tetrarchies. That certainly by 132, 135, A.D. 135, um, after the revolt of Simon Bar Kokhba, when the Jews were virtually decimated and wiped off the land. It was of Holocaust proportions what happened to them then. So that's maps that for your perusal. Section 1, I'm providing you here with my interpretation of Matthew 2, 13 through 21, as well as my translations of Matthew 2 and Hosea 10 and a portion of Hosea. Well, is this all of Hosea 10? I think it's all of Hosea 10 and then also part of 11, and I begin. So let me just start at the beginning then here of section 1, my interpretation. I figure I might as well read this to you so let you know, okay, how am I thinking about the relationship between these passages? Well, this is it. 
In the midst of Herod the Great's efforts to destroy Jesus, who has been identified by the men from the east as the king of the Jews, God instructs Joseph and Mary to take Jesus to Egypt in order to keep him safe. This journey to and from Egypt becomes an opportunity for Matthew, by using a statement in Hosea 11.1, to point out its similarity to the rescue by God from slavery in Egypt of the nation of Israel, that is, Jacob, his sons, and their descendants around 1500 B.C., The nation of Israel was called the Son of God in Exodus, and Jesus' function within the creation is that of the Son of God as the final Davidic king, according to the Davidic covenant of around 1000 BC. Thus, there is a similarity in labels between the entire group of Jews and Jesus, which also means that there is a theological and literary similarity between the two events of the exodus of the Jews and the return to Israel of Jesus after Herod's death. And I'm going to add here and a similarity to what's happening to the Jews at the time of Hosea, right around 750 B.C. As a result, Matthew can call Jesus' journey to and from Egypt a kind of fulfillment of the statement that God makes to the prophet Hosea around 730 B.C. regarding his having rescued the northern tribes of the kingdom of Israel from slavery in Egypt. However, in this case, God is rescuing his son, the Davidic king, from death in the land of Israel and then having him make the same kind of journey from Egypt as the earlier Israelites made. So the earlier Israelites were rescued from danger in Egypt. Jesus is being rescued from danger in Israel. And yet there is this nominal connection of Egypt playing a part in both of those events. And so Matthew is able to draw upon this statement where God is saying that he rescued the nation of Israel from danger in Egypt, Matthew's able to use that to talk about God's rescuing Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah from danger in Israel. But he goes down to Egypt, and there's your nominal connection. However, I would suggest that if God had said to, to Mary and Joseph, take your son Jesus to America, because Herod is about ready to kill all the, the baby boys in Bethlehem, that Matthew still would have been able to say that Jesus' journey from Israel to America and back is a fulfillment of God's statement to the Jews in Hosea of out of Egypt I called my son. Because the point is is that God is faithful to the nation of Israel and rescues them from danger. And he did so specifically when he rescued them from Egypt. He's doing that to the Davidic king, Jesus, But there's also a similarity in this too. While God is talking about rescuing Israel from danger, he says, but not forever, basically. Because what's going to happen soon is that the Assyrians are going to swoop down upon Israel and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and take them off into exile. So in the midst of his protecting them from danger, he is also very just in his treatment of them. Yet he keeps his promises to Abraham and to David. And that's what he's doing with Jesus too. Because Jesus escapes danger at this point in his existence as a human being on earth. But he doesn't 30 or 33 or so years later when he is crucified on a cross. So there's that element I think that's play too. You can ask me some more questions about that in the Q&A. Matthew 2 is the next page of section 1. And you have my translation here 
of this chapter. And you'll see verse 15. That's what I'm talking about here. Thus he was there until Herod's death. So that the statement by the Lord was, there's that word again, the Greek word plerao, fulfilled when he said to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then the following two pages are my translation of Hosea 10 and 11 with the addition of Hosea 1.1. Just to give us some historical context here, as Charlie has already done, the message of Yahweh which came to Hosea, son of Be'eri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. And then what I have done in translating chapters 10 and 11 for you is just giving you some more context, as I would hope that you would do anyway in your regular Bibles. If you're studying Hosea 11.1, take a look at what's happening before, take a look at what's being said afterwards, in fact, take a look at what's being said in the whole book. And oh, by the way, if you have the time, look at the whole Bible. Probably a good idea to take a look at it too and to try to connect all the dots that we find in the biblical message from Genesis right through Revelation as we're coming to understand any verse in the Bible. I show you in chapter 10, verse 6, kind of in the middle of the page there, the word Assyria is underlined because what I'm doing here in this and also the next section or two sections, a few sections from now, is underlining references to Assyria, that empire which was in existence at the time that God used as a tool and an instrument of his justice toward the northern kingdom of Israel and the Jews living there. And then on the final page there, page 4, when Israel was a youth, indeed I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. I know that Lynn very well brought up the question this morning about, well, wait a minute, this seems to be different from the Septuagint and what Charlie actually had on his handout. And I won't go into detail on that right now, but we can talk about that some more at the Q&A too, if you'd like. Section number two. Section number two, as Jack did and some others, I'm offering you some important interpretive issues and questions to think about as you are engaging and looking at these two verses and these two passages from Hosea 11.1 1 and Matthew 2.15. Number one here at the top of page one of section two, I'm just simply asking the question, okay, what does God mean in Hosea 11 when he's talking about having a father-son relationship with the ones to whom he, or one to whom he's referring in this verse? And you can notice I'm leaving that one or ones kind of open-ended there because that's something that we want to think about too. So I list some kind of typical elements of father-son relationship, just stuff that I want to think about because as I'm taking you through all of this, part of the purpose for presenting this material to you is to show you at a minimum this is what I would like to know in order to be able to answer the question, what's the relationship between Hosea 11.1 and Matthew 2.15? So, father-son relationship? What in the heck does God mean in Hosea 11.1 about that? And just thinking through maybe what I think about in terms of a father-son relationship. And does this, any of this stuff relate to what God is saying, Hosea 11.1? And then in section number two here, geographical, political, historical, and contextual issues in Matthew 2, for example, I want to know what is the relationship between Judea, Judah in Matthew 2, and Judah in Hosea 11 in related Old Testament passages. Just like to know that. Stuff about King Herod, I'd like to know too. And then turning the page to page three, at the top of the page right there, geographical, political, historical, and contextual issues in Hosea 10 and 11. What's the time period of Hosea? And the king's mentioned in 1.1. 1, 1. 
To whom exactly is God referring in 10.1 when he says Yisrael, Israel? What is the relationship between Samaria and Israel in chapter 10? To what is God referring when he says the house of Aven? Okay. Then number four here, probably this has been talked about already by several, well, by you all in your groups. What does Matthew mean when he says that the statement in Hosea 11.1 was fulfilled? There's that Greek word plerao again. When Joseph, Mary, and Jesus went away into Egypt in order to return to Israel after Herod's death. And I offer you four options here to think through. I offered myself four options initially to think through. Gee, I wonder which one is correct. And A is the typical one. Jack said earlier, gosh, this is the way I always used to think and only thought about the word fulfilled. That's A. B and C are kind of wild and crazy. You can think about those too. What did I say? B and C are the wild and crazy ones. D gets more at where I think, what I think is going on. I'll read these briefly, quickly. Hosea 11.1, D here, speaks of how God treated the nation of Israel, whom he called his son, or specifically and only, and I really think this is the case now that I thought about it some more, only the northern kingdom of Israel is the group of people to whom he's referring in Hosea 11.1. Northern kingdom of Israel as simply a portion of the previous Son of God, so that the New Testament author can use this statement to refer to a similar experience for another Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, as a Jewish Messiah and Davidic king, and thus say that Jesus' experience fulfills, quote-unquote, the statement about the experience of the nation of Israel. However, in no way is Hosea 11 predicting, talking beforehand about an event in Jesus' life that will actually take place. Then the paragraph below that, the Old Testament passage, and this is another way of saying it, probably in a more generic sense, more general sense. The Old Testament passage talks about a specific event in Old Testament history that ends up being so similar to a New Testament event that the New Testament author can say that the latter is a fulfillment of the statement concerning the Old Testament event. Indeed, a fulfillment of the Old Testament event itself. However, in no way does the Old Testament event or the passage or the event to which it is referring actually predict the New Testament event. In fact, if either the Old Testament event or the New Testament event never occurred, God's plans and purposes could very possibly still be completed. In other words, the actual fulfilling of the Old Testament passage slash event by the New Testament event may or may not be necessary for God to complete his eternal plans and purposes. Now that's really bizarre stuff right there. And that's obscure and you have some questions about that for me, uh, please do so at, at the Q&A. On to section three. What I offer you here, this is my grid, my theological grid. So after 30 years or so of studying the Bible, here's what I think are the important biblical events that when I approach a passage like Matthew 2, Hosea 11, this is in the background. This is what I have in mind. Everything from the creation right on through the second appearance of the Messiah. And then what I've done for you is in the middle of this list, I have put in boxes stuff that is, I think, very important for understanding Hosea and what's going on there. The first thing is the division of the land of Canaan and the tribal land of Israel that takes place in Numbers 32 and 34, as well as in Joshua. And then you go to your map, you look at the map, you see how that land was divided up amongst the how many tribes of Israel? Got a bunch of halves in there, unless you want to call them a full tribe. It just depends. But the Levites didn't get any land. Their inheritance was Yahweh himself. 
Ephraim and Manasseh get it, Manasseh's division, his, the quantity of land that he got, you go, my goodness, wow, what did he do <laughs> you know, to get in such good favor with God? And then there's little Ephraim, and Simeon is, is quite small too. So you can be looking at that. And then the second thing that I sort of highlight for you with a box is the split of the monarchy into the northern kingdom of Israel comprised of all tribes but Judah and Benjamin. And I'm not really sure what happened to Simeon in that list because Simeon sits right in the middle of Judah. So any of you have some uh, help for me in that regard, love to hear it at the Q&A. The southern kingdom of Judah is the second thing that it gets divided into. This is the Davidic kingdom comprised of mainly, I'm saying there, mainly kind of in quotes, Judah and Benjamin. So I would want to keep these biblical events in mind as I'm looking at Hosea 11 and Matthew 2. On the next page, I have a list for you, a chart of dates, prophets, kings, and Old Testament passages. It's page 2 of section 3. On the far left side, the date's going from 1100 B.C. right on through about 500 B.C. Next column, all the prophets that were involved in Israel and Obadiah with the Edomite nation. Then at the top, you've got, of course, the first three kings, Saul, David, Solomon. And then after Solomon, you get the split in the kingdom because of Rehoboam's behavior towards the Jews, and the northern tribes decide to split off, and you get this divided kingdom that remains right on through to 586 B.C. So if you look down the list there of prophets, you can find Hosea. There he is, 753 to 715 B.C., kind of in the middle of the page, that is halfway down. And then look across to the right, under Israel's king, you get Jeroboam the second. He's the one who's mentioned in Hosea 11.1. 1. He's the second because he's the son of Joash is the way he is distinguished from Jeroboam the first at the top there of that particular column, who was the first king of the king of Israel, the son of Nebat. And then across from him, from Jeroboam the second, right there is Azariah and Uzziah. He's called by both those names in the Hebrew scriptures. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, if you want to kind of just bracket those, even if it's just in your mind, those are the kings that are at play here in Hosea. That's section three. On to section four. Section four, I provide for you and me a brief description of the Israel of Jesus. What's going on? In Jesus, And this is stuff that I want, want to know as I'm trying to grasp what Matthew is saying. And we've got this guy Herod, for example, who's playing a prominent role in Matthew 2. Who the heck is Herod? What's he doing there? How did he get there? He's a king. In fact, he has been granted the title king of the Jews by the Roman Senate, it turns out. And he is what's been called a client or vassal king within the Roman Empire. So things like that I provide you with in here is three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip, end up dividing up the empire. But Archelaus is such a jerk that the Roman government replaces that tetrarchy with a province ruled by governors, the most famous of whom is Pontius Pilate uh, later on. Talk to you a little bit about the population of the land, the Samaritans included there, and it's a little bit of a mystery about them. The folks that play an important role in interacting with Jesus on page 2 here, the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. Brief description of them and the fact that uh, many of them comprise what's called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And then on page 3 of section 4, the last paragraph before the bold line, I state what I think is the really problematic moral spiritual issue 
in the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, chief priests, elders, the leadership of the Jews, what's the real spiritual moral problem that they have such that they end up rejecting Jesus as the Messiah? And I'll just state it quickly, their lack of recognition of the depth of their moral depravity. That's what they were missing. They really thought they were good people. And no, they're not, I'm not, no one has been. Adam and Eve weren't. The only person who has been has been Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah, as a morally perfect human being. All the rest of us are very problematic in our moral nature. Below the bold line here, just some verses that you can go through that uh, mention these folks, and I draw some of my understanding, most of my understanding of them from passages like those. Section 5. Biblical historical context of Jonah and Hosea. The reason I include Jonah here is because if you look on that chart of prophets and kings and, and Old Testament passages, which was over in the right-hand column there, at least in First and Second Kings, Jonah was a contemporary of Hosea. Jonah was therefore lived right about the same time as not only Hosea but also Isaiah. And so I'd like you to bring this back on Thursday, and I will refer briefly to section 5 here when I get a chance to talk about Jonah. But we'll skip him for the time being, jump down below the solid line, the bold line to Hosea. So what I do here, the biblical historical context, is I've translated portions of what ends up being, if you turn to page 2, 2 Kings 15, the beginning of that chapter through 2 Kings 21, 15. I've also included just above that on page 1, Hosea 1, 1, as I did in the translation of section 1, I think it was, as well as a list of the Syrian kings who ruled over the Neo-Syrian Empire during this particular time and whom God used as rulers over that empire to come in and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Another thing that I do here, you can see a lot of bolded words. I'm just kind of, as I was reading through this, uh, I was kind of going, okay, what is helping me clues, evidence to unpack what's going on in this history of the northern kingdom of Israel to whom Hosea is speaking that hopefully will help me to interpret Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. One of the things I did down at the bottom of page 2 is I underline, as I mentioned to, I think already, stuff that refers to Assyria. So here's Tiglath-Pileser. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured these places. All the land of Naphtali, and he took them away into Assyria. That was the beginning of the end for the northern kingdom of Israel. On page 3, I'd like to point out to you, as we continue through this history and the various kings that come into existence and into reigning over the northern kingdom of Israel as well as the southern kingdom of Judah at this time, if you look down about three-fourths of the way down, you'll see 2 Kings 17.6. In the ninth year of Hosea, and then underline this information with regard to Assyria. Assyria is taking people away and all the way into the cities of the Medes. But notice this right afterwards. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had acted in an evil manner against Yahweh their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They had feared other gods, etc., etc. Turn the page to the box of 2 Kings 17, verse 13. Yet Yahweh warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every telegnostic, saying, 
Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the Torah which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. There's the crux of it right there. God has been patient. He's been warning both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, sending prophets, telegnostic. It's a new word. I found. I just had to throw it in there, okay? It normally, I think it gets translated as seer, perhaps. Banal word. But telegnostic means receiving information from outside. So these are folks who received information from God himself. So God had warned them, but they didn't pay attention. And then if you drop down to verse 18... Consequently, Yahweh was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. None was left but the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. In addition, Judah did not keep the commandments of Yahweh their God, but walked in the religious customs of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, which they had performed. Thus Yahweh rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had thrown them out of his presence. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, That's a really, really, really key statement right there. They made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following Yahweh, and he made them commit tremendous evil. The sons of Israel walked in all the wicked actions of Jeroboam, which he had performed. They did not depart from them until Yahweh had removed Israel from his presence, just as he spoke through all his servants and prophets. Thus Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day couple more references underlined there to Assyria on page 4. Then going over to page 5, here of section 5. I think another important aspect of this whole thing is we're thinking about the two kingdoms, the divided kingdoms, second kings, about, mm, what is that? One-fifth the way down the page, second kings 19, verse 32. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come down to this city, Jerusalem, nor shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield, nor throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he will return. And he shall not come to the city, declares Yahweh. And then a very important statement here, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Keep that in mind. So that's enough of section five. Let's go to the last section here, section six. This particular subject... (laughs) I have been learning about in a more in-depth way just over the last few years and have found it to be life-changing and thought-changing when it comes to my understanding of the Bible. And that is the concept and the label, the Son of God, specifically as it relates to the Davidic covenant. If you would like to read an even longer explanation of this, and maybe two things. There's a website called biblicalphilosophers.com, and on that website, you'll see, you can click on something that says the biblical philosophers, and then you'll see my picture, and you'll see me, that is, and you'll see under that C work, and you'll see all the stuff that I have written and made available on this particular website, and the first item is a book that I've written entitled God's Project Through the Window of John Chapter 5. And the longest chapter in that book has to do with the Davidic covenant and the Davidic king. There's also, just under that, by FYI, if you want to look into or just think about more the history of Israel, back in 2006, a group of people asked me to help them understand what was going on in the Middle East when 
Israel bumped into that debacle in Gaza and southern Lebanon. And so I put together a PowerPoint presentation that I have converted to two PDF files, each of which is, I think, 20 megabytes size. And so be patient. It'll take a while for those to download if you want to download both sections. But the whole thing is Israel and the Middle East, the last 6,000 years. So that's available for you to look at too, if you like. But this subject then, the Son of God in the Old Testament, huge, 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 huge. Can't emphasize it enough for you to continue to think about. First of all, there is the fact that the nation of Israel is spoken of by God as the Son of God. First mentioned in Exodus 4.21 when Moses is being commissioned by God to go to Pharaoh and God says to Moses, tell Pharaoh, Israel's my son and I want my son out of Egypt. And if you don't let him out, I'm going to take your son. So son is an important concept there for God, obviously, in Exodus and thinking through exactly what that means vis-a-vis the promises to Abraham and to his descendants through the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant that's coming up in Exodus and then later on. There's another reference to the Jews as God's son in Isaiah 63 that you can read through. But let's jump down to below the bold line, David's son as the son of God. Won't read through all 2 Samuel 7, 1 through verse 17. Let me point your attention to page 2, verses 12 through 16 of 2 Samuel 7. God says to David after David has thought, you know, I'm living in this really nice palace. The tabernacle of God is still ah, hanging out in this goatskin tent. I think I want to build a stone temple for God, or at least a more permanent building. Nathan initially says, the prophet says, a wonderful idea. God comes to Nathan the night and says, whoa, 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 wait, Nathan, I think you spoke a little presumptuously there. I've got a slightly different message for David. Go back and say this to him. First of all, you ain't going to build a temple. It's your son who's going to do so. But when you're, verse 12, when your days have reached their end and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from your guts and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom into perpetuity. And I intentionally translate what always gets translated in our English Bibles, Le'olam, as into perpetuity because Le'olam doesn't necessarily have an eternal meaning to it, I don't think. I think it means as long as God wants something to last, which may not be eternally. For example, the present realm. It lasts Olam, but only as long as God wants to. And I think that that's part of what God is even talking about here. I will be his father and he will be my son, whose immoral actions I will reprove with the rod of men and the plagues of the sons of man, the word Adam there. However, my loyal love, my chesed, will never depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from your presence. Your house and your kingdom will be permanent, my presence into perpetuity. Your throne will be established into perpetuity, according to all these words and all this division. So Nathan spoke to God. Thinking through the fact that this is what has just completely revolutionized my understanding of the Bible, is that Solomon was the son of God. Heard that before? But that's phenomenal. This immoral morally depraved man who needs God's mercy like me, who ended up with 300 wives and 700 concubines, is the Son of God. And I'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a minute. That's huge. So as we go along then, I offer you Psalm 8 at the bottom of page 2, my translation of it. Some people think, I've heard that some people take Psalm 8 to be referring to Genesis 1. I think it is David writing about, he's so awed by the fact that God has chosen 
a morally depraved human being, his son Solomon, to be the son of God, that it just blows him away. Now, it's here that we can begin to understand an element of what that means to be the son of God that's extremely important for us. So, okay, very quickly, I'll get back to that notion in just a second here. Page three, at the top there, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, God's prediction of a king for Israel. Let me just offer you, my conclusion is that God intended Israel to have a king all along. I was taught that when the Israelites asked for a king and they got Saul, that they were being disobedient to God because they were refusing to allow God to be their king and instead demanding a human king like their neighbors. I don't think that they were being disobedient in that regard. God intended for the Israelites to have a king from eternity past. His name was going to be Jesus of Nazareth. What was problematic about the Israelites asking for the king at that moment was that they were jumping the gun. That's all. Not the fact that they were asking for a king. So the whole notion of a king of Israel and the son of God as it pertains to this idea of a king is the central concept in the Bible, I would suggest. What's the king, though, all about? Okay, jump down to the bottom of page three. In Psalm 2, I think David is writing a psalm at the coronation of his son Solomon, and he's saying in verses 7 through 9, as if Solomon himself were quoting what God has said to him, I will recount the statue of Yahweh. This is Solomon speaking. He said to me, Solomon, you're my son. Today I have given birth to you, metaphorically speaking, by virtue of your being anointed, Mashiach, the king of Israel. Ask of me and I will surely give the goyim, the Gentiles, as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a scepter of iron and you shall shatter them like potter's ware. The key idea here is that the son of God, Solomon, had the right and the responsibility to rule over the entire universe. Everything that God has created, that's the territory that Solomon was commissioned to rule over and that ultimately the final Davidic king, Jesus of Nazareth, definitely will rule over right on into the eternal kingdom of God. That's important. So that when anyone walked into the throne room of Solomon, it should have been their thinking that I am walking into the presence of Yahweh because Solomon was Yahweh's proxy, representative, and had the same level of authority as Yahweh, except just a little bit lower, because guess what? Solomon ain't uncreated. Only Yahweh is. So there is that difference, but it's a very small difference when you think about it just in terms of the power and the authority that Solomon had and that Jesus will have. Okay, one last thing, and it's this. I was really struck when I was reading through this history that when the two kingdoms split, briefly, the reason why the kingdom split was because Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was a jerk. He was a young man, arrogant, self-righteous, and thought that he was really going to do the right thing for himself by oppressing his fellow Jews and taking over the throne of his father. And the northern kingdom of Israel said, we want none of it, none of you, and none of what's happening. But what I found out was this. After Rehoboam went away from the, the Jews of the northern kingdom and he went back down south to Judah to muster an army to go back up and fight against his fellow Jews and force them 
to submit to him as the Davidic king. Page 5, chapter 11, verse 4, with a box around it, thus says Yahweh, you shall not go up and you shall not fight against your brothers. Return each man because this thing is from me. I go into a longer explanation of that. You can ask me about that at the Q&A. They listened to the words of Yahweh and they returned from going against Jeroboam. So Judah and Benjamin belonged to him, to Jeroboam. But notice this. This just gives me chills. Practically brings me to tears. And the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel stood with Rehoboam in spite of the fact that he was a jerk from all their districts in the northern area of the kingdom of Israel so that the Levites abandoned their pasture and property and they came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to Yahweh. He set up priests of his own for the high places, for the satires, the calves which he made. And then, and right behind them, the Levites, came all those to Jerusalem from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts to seek Yahweh, the God of Israel, to sacrifice to Yahweh, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah. They supported Rehoboam in spite of what a jerk he was the son of Solomon, for three years because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. That's huge. So I'll just end with this. Understanding just how important the Davidic kingdom is, and it's the kingdom of Judah that's the Davidic kingdom, is key to understanding Jewish history and the prophetic books and I think what Matthew is doing in his book when he quotes from passages like Hosea 11.1. You're welcome. If you want to just lay this stuff out sometime over a cup of coffee, a glass of single malt, you know, whatever is your, whatever helps you think, and just keep reading and rereading and rereading this stuff and let the dots try to connect in your mind. That's basically what I did. That's what I've been able to do to get me at least as far as I am right now.